So our passage for today is Luke chapter 13, if you want to turn there. I suppose every believer in Jesus has their favorite Bible verses, those verses we go to when we're wanting comfort, encouragement, motivation. Um, we, we tend to really want those verses or are attracted to those verses that just really are um, soothing to us, comforting. And I'm guessing that the verses here in Luke 13 probably don't make anybody's top 10 list of favorite verses. Um, we like it when Jesus says comforting things, not challenging things. Like in John 6.35 where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. It's an amazing promise that we just are really drawn to. But here in Luke 13, Jesus talks about something very challenging. It's very confronting. Thing is, if we can get past our initial discomfort with what he says, we're going to find that what he says is actually a very loving and helpful thing. It would be very foolish to only read verses where Jesus says something we already agree with. That would assume that we're already right about everything. There's nothing about our thinking, about our living that needs to change. Well, if we're honest, we know that's not true. Be incredibly silly and very arrogant to think that we know better than Jesus. So I really want to encourage you and, and me to come to this passage with humility and remember that Jesus always has our best interests at heart, even when he says things that you know might make us uncomfortable. So Luke chapter 13. Here Jesus is doing what he often did. He's speaking to a large crowd of people. And somebody in the crowd brings up a topic, an issue, that they were all wondering about. That something had happened there, that uh, a terrible thing, that was very uh, troubling to them. And, and so they bring it up to Jesus to see what he has to say about it. So verse 1 of Luke 13, there were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans, those would be people in the northern part of the land, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Now Pilate was the, the governor of that, uh, governor, Roman governor of that land, and apparently some Galileans had come down from the north to Jerusalem to worship, had brought their sacrificial animals, and we don't know exactly what happened. We don't have any details. But Pilate had in some way, something had happened, and, and he had had those people slaughtered. And that fits with what we know about the kind of person Pilate was. Verse 2, And Jesus answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, 
Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So Jesus is using two awful historical events as an opportunity to talk about repentance and our need for it. Now, one event was a horrible act of injustice by a cruel leader. Uh, The other was apparently an accident. Some tower in Jerusalem had collapsed and crushed 18 people. But you know, both of these events, in, 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 in this fallen world, this world broken by our sin, those kinds of things are not necessarily unusual at all. In fact, history is littered with all kinds of examples of, of people, uh, particularly people in authority, committing atrocities against other people, or, uh, and our world is full of, of natural disasters. I think just this last week or week before, there were several tornadoes in the South that were devastating. And our current pandemic, this coronavirus thing, that's, that's really just one of many hard things that can come into our lives at any time. And just like then, in the events Jesus is talking about, so also now, these kinds of events tend to bring questions to our minds. And they can expose some faulty thinking that we engage in. Uh, we seem to have this tendency to want to comfort ourselves with ideas that aren't necessarily true. Uh, for example, I've heard uh, again and again people say in recent weeks something like, well, we're going to get through this because, by golly, we're Americans and that's just what we do. And we're going to overcome this thing. And there seems to be this implication that, well, because, you know, we're in control here and we're going to figure this thing out, we're going to conquer it, and, and we'll have the power to fix it. Now, I think we probably will get through it. I hope we do. Um, but if that is the case, it's not going to be because we're in ultimate control. Uh, we saw that in James chapter 4 in, in the first study we did in this series, uh, where we might say, well, I'm going to go here and do this, and I'm going to go here and do that. And James says, no, you really ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that, because he's ultimately in control, you're not. And so if we are able to survive this pandemic, that's going to be because of God's mercy and because of God's grace, not because we're in control and can fix it. Uh, so we've got to be careful of this tendency to believe things that aren't necessarily true. And Jesus here seems to be exposing some false logic that his listeners were apparently using to comfort themselves in light of these tragic events. It's like they're saying, uh, you know, that's not going to happen to us, is it, Jesus, right? And their logic seemed to go something like this. Well, bad things happen to bad people. That's a common belief. Therefore, those people must have done something bad. 
uh, or else this was just a complete fluke that's, you know, not how things usually go. They must have done something bad, and since we're good people, nothing that bad's going to happen to us. Right, Jesus? You know, Jesus isn't buying it. He is not into calming our fears with falsehoods. Uh, he always gives us solid truth that we can actually rely on. And so he responds and says, you know, those folks who died, they were not worse people than you. And trying to figure out why they died is not going to help you. So don't bother speculating about why something terrible happened to them and not to you. Instead, Jesus says, do something else. Use this as an opportunity to take a good hard look at yourself and see whether or not you're actually living the way God wants you to. Because if you're not, you need to repent. And if you don't repent, well, the ultimate outcome for you is not going to be any better than it was for these people. I am certain that that is not the answer they were hoping for. Uh, John Piper points out, these people were not asking Jesus for his opinion on their sin. They were curious about the others. But Jesus turns it around and makes it all about them. Now, why would he do that? Why would he say this? Well, the answer is actually simple, but profound. He says it because he loves them and he loves us. And love sometimes requires telling us bad news in order to give us good news. And a classic example of this would be a, a very serious medical diagnosis, like cancer. Uh, nobody wants to be told that they have cancer. That's bad news. I can relate to that. That happened to me in 2001. I didn't want to hear that. I didn't like the doctor telling me that. But he had to tell me that bad news in order to tell me some good news, which was that there was a treatment that would uh, very likely bring about remission and even a cure and by God's grace, that's exactly what happened. But you know what? I would not have even listened to information about that treatment if I didn't know I needed it, if I hadn't been told the bad news. It's the bad news that made me receptive to the good news so I could experience it. Or if you were maybe out camping in some dark area, you know, out in the woods somewhere, and, and, and you and your friends are out walking around at night, and you happen to look over and because your night vision is better than your friends, you see that they, your friend's about to walk off a cliff. Well, what would the loving thing to do be? Wouldn't it be to say, whoa, stop, don't go that way. You're going you're gonna to die, don't do that. And your friend might not appreciate that. Your friend might say, hey, where do you get off telling me where I can and can't go? You know, who, wh why, how do you have the right to tell me what I'm doing is bad. Your friend could say that. That'd be a very foolish thing to do. Jesus is telling us to repent because he doesn't want us 
to perish. He's not trying to depress us. He's not trying to spoil our fun. He's actually looking out for our welfare, our joy. Here's Piper again. He says, These folks were astonished that people were murdered and crushed. But Jesus says, What you ought to be astonished at is that you were not the ones murdered and crushed. In fact, if you don't repent, you yourselves will meet a judgment worse than that someday. And so what that tells us is that disasters like this are actually a gracious summons from God to repent and be saved while there is still time. In other words, there's an opportunity here. Take advantage of it for your own good. So let's think about this. Let's think about repentance and why it's a good thing. Jesus actually began his ministry by calling people to repent. If you go to the first part of the Gospels of Matthew and Mark, in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, Jesus says, The time has come. The kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is drawn close. So repent and believe the good news. And the thing to see here is that Jesus connects repenting with believing the good news, the gospel. That's what good news, gospel means good news. Which tells us that repentance is not an addition to faith in Jesus. It's not something we add to it or tack on as an extra. It's actually part of genuine faith in Jesus. We see that in, in Luke chapter 15. Jesus is telling several stories there to describe what it's like when a person who's been lost from God comes to be found by God, or if somebody who's not right with God becomes right with God. He's describing what that looks like, and he adds this comment in verse 7 of chapter 15. He says, just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So repentance is part of what happens in our lives when we become right with God. When we experience going from being lost to God to being found by God, repentance is part of that experience. So what is it exactly? What is repentance? Well, the word basically means turning around. Not in a physical sense, but in a spiritual, in a moral sense. And it's, it's an inward change of heart and mind that brings about outward changes in actions and behavior. So when John the Baptist was doing his thing, you know, getting, getting the people ready for the coming of Messiah, he went around telling people to repent. And he said this in Matthew 3.8. He said, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Now, he's not talking about actual bananas and oranges or something. He's talking about 
actions, behavior. And, and he's saying, if you're genuinely repentant, if you've experienced a genuine change in your heart and mind, then that's going to bring about changes on the outside. Bring forth the fruit in keeping with that inner change. So, repentance is essentially admitting you were wrong. You've come to realize that you've been going the wrong way. You've been heading in the wrong direction. And, and now you, you see that, and you want to change direction. That is the core idea of repentance. And I think it's really important to realize something. Jesus here is not talking mainly about identifying and repenting of specific sins. Although that's a good thing to do. I'm not saying anything against that. Uh, the problem is we just sometimes think of sin as, as merely the bad things we do. But the true diagnosis of sin goes far deeper. The deeper issue is a problem with our hearts and our minds and the overall direction of our lives. One day, somebody came to Jesus and said, which, which is the greatest commandment? You know, the Bible's a big book, and it's, it's got all kinds of instructions and commands and things. But what's most important? If you were to boil it all down, what, what is really the foundational, most important thing? If we're going to get anything right, what's the thing we absolutely have to nail? And Jesus says the greatest commandment is this, to love God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. That is our most fundamental responsibility as people, to love God with all that we are. But if we're honest, that, that's, not, that's not what comes naturally to us apart from God working in our lives. We don't love Him more than anything else. We actually love other things, other people more than we love Him. We, we tend to trust in ourselves and trust in other people more than we trust Him. We tend to honor ourselves and honor other people more than we honor Him. And we just don't feel how terrible, how awful that is to do. That we would disregard, dishonor, fail to love the One who is most worthy of our love and honor and respect. And because we don't feel how bad that is, well, that's, that's the main thing that needs to change. That's the kind of repentance that Jesus is talking about here. It, it's not just saying, oh, I said a bad word or I, I did an unkind thing. I need to repent of that. Well, that's true. But the much bigger issue is, where's your heart and mind when it comes to God? Where's my heart and mind when it comes to God? Am, am I giving Him the love and honor He truly deserves? You can say it like this. We're not sinners simply because we sin. 
we sin because we're sinners. The problem starts on the inside. It's with our hearts and our minds. And because we fail to love God the way we should, we end up doing things God hates. And this is so, I think, important to get. You know, if you think about the people that Jesus was talking to, they were the kind of people that we would typically think of as good people. If you had known them, if you had been there, you would have said, yeah, these are nice people. These are good folks. Because they believed in God. They believed in the Bible. They tried to live good moral lives to do what's right. Yeah, they knew they weren't perfect, but they weren't criminals. And yet, Jesus said they needed to repent. That there was something fundamentally wrong with how they were living. And that tells us that repentance is not just for bad people. It's for every single one of us. And you might wonder, okay, well, why is repentance necessary? You know, I mean, we, we normally talk about believing in Jesus, having faith in Jesus, and that's what makes us right with God. And, and that's true. But why can't we put our faith in Jesus without, without repenting? You know, that seems so negative. <laughs> well, that's a really good question. And the answer is simply this. To put our faith in Jesus, to believe in him truly, as the Bible says, that means relying on him, putting our ultimate confidence in him, and we're not going to rely on him until we stop relying on other things instead of him. To repent is to stop relying on other things to do for us what Jesus alone can do, to give our lives meaning, to provide that ultimate deep satisfaction we need. That's why this passage really is not that different from that comforting verse I read earlier, you know, John 6.35. Remember, it's Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall not thirst. Okay, so it's those who come to Jesus who shall not hunger and those who trust in him who shall never thirst. Well, here's the thing. We're not going to come to him, not in this sense, not to meet the deepest hunger of our souls. I mean, we, we might go ahead and call ourselves Christian and identify with Christians, and we might read the Bible even sometimes and, and pray, but we will not come to Jesus to meet the deepest hunger of our lives until we stop going to other things to meet that hunger, satisfy that hunger. We're not going to trust in Jesus to quench our deep spiritual thirst until we repent of going to the other things that we've been trying to quench our spiritual thirst with. We cannot honor Christ as the greatest treasure of our lives as long as we're honoring other things above Him. And we're all prone to that. We're all prone to value other things more than Him. You know, maybe we value good health or we value our family or financial security or safety or you know things that are good but if we put those above Christ as more important to 
to us than he is. That's the problem. That's why repentance is necessary. We've got to turn from the other things we're worshiping, the other things that we are considering of ultimate value, to turn to him as the one who is of ultimate value to us. And that's not just a one-time thing. It, sure, it definitely begins with a one-time turning to Jesus. You know, there's a beginning to that. But repentance is an ongoing necessity. Every time God's Spirit helps us see, helps us become aware of ways where we're failing to trust Him as we ought to, that's when we need to repent. So I want to think about why repentance is a good thing. That this thing that might sound negative is actually incredibly beneficial. I'll give you two reasons why it's a, it's a good thing. Uh, first of all, because repentance sets us free from delusions that would destroy us. Repentance is like waking up from this dreamland we've been in where we're telling ourselves things and believing things that aren't really true. It's waking up to the fact that the things we've been trusting in to satisfy our deepest longings and make us happy and keep us safe, that those things are eventually going to fail us. Because anything less than Jesus is simply not up to the task. And the reality is, whatever you and I put our ultimate confidence in to make us happy, to give our lives meaning, whatever that is, that for us in effect is our God. And if your God isn't the real God revealed to us in the person of Jesus Christ, if that's not your God, then your God is an idol. And the thing about idols is, they don't love you back. They will ultimately fail you. Jesus told a parable about this uh, one day. He said in Matthew 7, this is, this is at the end of his Sermon on the Mount. He's been teaching us what it's like, what it looks like to be part of his kingdom, part of his people, his family. And he says this, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Now, on one level, the lesson here is obvious. You know, if, if the foundation isn't solid, the building's going to fall sooner or later. That's why we build foundations out of concrete and rebar and not out of uh, mud. Because if the foundation doesn't hold, the building's going down. But the application Jesus makes about that principle is, it's astonishing. 
He is saying that there is only one foundation that you can build your life on that will not fail you so that your life ultimately stands and isn't destroyed. And that one foundation is believing what he says to the point of acting on it. That is amazing. That means that if you and I are building our lives on anything other than Jesus and what he says, then we need to repent for our own sakes so that our lives are not destroyed. So that's one reason repentance is a good thing. It frees us from destructive delusions. The other reason, or one other reason, is that repentance is a gift from God. Scripture makes this very clear. Repentance is a gift. So Acts eleven eighteen. When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted, has given repentance that leads to life. 2 Timothy 2.25, here Paul's giving instructions for a church leader and says that those who oppose him, he must gently instruct in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. So look at that. Repentance leads to life. Repentance leads to the knowledge of the truth. Repentance is a gift from God. And God's gifts are good. I titled this message, A Good Time to Repent. Now, why did I do that? Why, why do I think this is a good time to repent? Because in one sense, any time that we need to repent is a good time to repent. But this seems like an especially good time. And I say that because of what Jesus teaches us here. You know, this, this coronavirus, this pandemic thing, I'm confident God is at work in hundreds and thousands, maybe millions of ways, billions of ways, in the lives of people all around the world. He is doing many, many things, most of which we probably have no idea and can't even guess. But because of what Jesus says here, we can be sure that of all the hundreds and thousands of things that God is doing through this coronavirus thing, one of the things we can be sure he's doing is giving us an opportunity to repent. Calling us to repent. Just like those terrible events that happened in Jesus' day, you know, the coronavirus is taking the lives of tens of thousands of people and it, it's easy for us to wonder why, to, to speculate, why did those people die? Why them? But that kind of speculation doesn't really help anyone. Instead, Jesus would have us see this as an opportunity to do some serious evaluation of our own hearts and minds and the direction of our lives. You know, Am I in sync with God? A am I living the way he wants me to? A am I on his path? 
Or have I been ignoring Him, living as if He really doesn't matter? And again, this is not so much about you know, identifying specific sins and repenting of those, although if you're aware of specific sins in your life you need to repent of, by all means do that. But, but the bigger issue is the state of your heart and your mind and your overall life direction. You get asked this question, whose, whose hands are on the steering wheel of your life? Or maybe a better question, who's got your heart? Who is your heart ultimately most loyal to? There are a couple of verses that I want to read that describe the kind of life that God wants us to live. One is Galatians 2.20. The Apostle Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. And he means my, my old way of living, my old way of living Without knowing Christ, I've died to that. But now Christ lives in me, and the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. She says, that's, that's how to live. Live by faith in the Son of God. Live by relying on him, trusting in him. And then you could say it in these words, Romans 8, 5. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. So two different mindsets. A mindset of just, you know, focused on what comes naturally to us as sinners. But those who have come to know Christ and have received His Spirit into their lives can live in accordance with the Spirit and what He desires by setting our minds on what He desires. And of course, the main way we know what the Spirit desires is in God's Word that He has given us. So which, which characterizes my life today? Where am I? Am I setting my mind on what the Spirit desires or what, what uh, the sin nature desires? Am I living by faith in the Son of God? or by faith in something else. Do some evaluation. That's, that's the opportunity today. And consider where and if you need to repent. And if you've never made that initial turning to Jesus, He offers you life. He offers you His direction, His guidance, His power. And if this moment, if this, if this pandemic moment becomes a turning point in our lives so that we turn away from the other things that we've been trusting in so that instead we can trust in Jesus Christ above other things, then that will mean this moment has been a good gift from God for all of us. An opportunity to turn to Him, to trust Him, to, to feel how desperately we need Him and how good He is to offer us forgiveness and His purpose and His direction for our lives. So I'm going to pray, and I just want to encourage you to use this time. I'll 
I'll pray for us, but you pray too. Just, just talk to God. The exact words you use are not the issue. He knows your heart. And if, and if this is a time to repent for you, um, then I would encourage you to do that. Don't see it as a negative thing. Don't see it as a hardship. See it as a real opportunity to experience the better things that God has for you. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for uh, words that, that uh, sort of get our attention, words to, to call us, to, to wake up to what's real. Lord, we, we can lose sight of what's real so easily, and we can become so enamored and so preoccupied with, with things and, and seek the kind of purpose and satisfaction and meaning that you alone can give us. And, and Lord, you are so good to call us to stop trusting in things that will fail us, to stop building our, our lives on sand, but instead to build them on the rock-solid foundation of Jesus. So, Lord, grant us the gift of repentance, not only now, but in, in each day to come. Lord, may we, may we take it seriously May we see how much is at stake in turning from other things to turn to you. Lord, be, be the one we love with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.